So Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to start from verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Uh, last time I spoke, we looked at the, the whole of Revelation chapter 1. We kind of saw there this, this wonderful vision that John describes of Jesus. And that's why the book is called Revelation. It's a, it's a revealing, it's a showing of Jesus. It's about him, and also it's from him. And it's like Jesus knows that his church, their greatest need in any situation they might find, whether that's persecution or trouble um, or whatever it might be, they need to see him. They need to have a fresh and ongoing revelation of who Jesus is. And so now Jesus is beginning to share seven prophetic messages to different churches. John has uh, written to these churches, we found out in chapter 1, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Jesus brings this vision to John and now kind of gives these messages to, to pass on to each, each church. And we might think, well, well, so what? I mean, we, we get to find out about what Jesus thought of these different churches. Some of them were going great guns. Some of them get... Uh, commended. Uh, some of them get commended for stuff they've done really well, um, but maybe they're also just being challenged uh, on the things that aren't so great. Um, we might think, well, how does this really affect us? Is this uh, to benefit us too? Well, it, well, it is. And I think there are a, a, couple of, a couple of hints, a couple of reasons that suggest, okay, this is not just about Ephesus, Smyrna, and so on. This is not just about them. Firstly, we notice this. There are seven churches that get these prophetic messages. And seven in the Bible is a significant number. We find out that on the seventh day, God had created the whole world and then he rested. The job was complete. He'd finished creation and he stood back. He said everything was very good. And then he rested. So seven has that, that flavor of it's complete. It's total. This is the full deal. This is the full job. We've also got a similar hint when we read earlier in chapter 1 of Revelation. Um, in verse 4, it says... Uh, verse 4, am I right? <laughs> there we go, yeah. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. 
and from the seven spirits before his throne. We might think, well, what's that about? Is that seven angels that were kind of specially blessed to be able to be up there? Uh, Well, no, I don't think it's that. You'll see if you've got a footnote um, that an alternative rendering of that is the, the sevenfold spirit. It's talking about the Holy Spirit. Grace and peace comes from God. This is talking about the Holy Spirit who wants to bless his church. And it's a sevenfold spirit. In other words, this is the full activity and ministry of the Holy Spirit. Everything he does, everything he uh, is, um, from him is great grace. Seven. It's kind of complete, the total, the full amount. And so now we're having these messages to seven churches. And so yes, they're specific to each and every one. But in them, we find things that are relevant for each and every church in every age. Seven churches. It's kind of talking about every church under the sun and the sorts of things they might get commended for, praised for. Well done, you're doing well. The sorts of things they might be uh, challenged on as well. And so at the end of the, uh, the message to the church in Ephesus, verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, yes, this is for Ephesus. But it may also be for you. It may also be for us. And so we want to give our attention to it this morning. It's a revelation of Jesus. Jesus knows that our greatest need, the church in Ephesus, their greatest need was to see him. And so that's how, that's how the message begins. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Flicking back to chapter 1, that should sound familiar because in, in John's vision, He draws out some of those elements in in chapter 1 and verse 12. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. So we have that there. In verse 16 also, in his right hand he held seven stars. And as it goes on in verse 20, we have those images explained. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And so it's almost as if John gets this awesome vision of Jesus, and he can see now when he starts to speak to the church in Ephesus, here is the revelation of Jesus that you particularly need to know. It's like if Jesus chose to reveal everything of his glorious and awesome heavenly majestic self to us in one go, we would be overwhelmed utterly and completely. And so that's perhaps why we we get ongoing revelation. Right, Ephesus, this is what you need to know. Jesus is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Kind of a strange image that Jesus is is holding angels in his hands. Those are what the stars are. Strange then also to our ears, it might sound strange anyway, that this message is addressed to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Well, that's it's peculiar. It sounds bizarre to us. But what we're beginning to get an insight is um, that, that in heaven, there are angels that are representing and also serving each particular 
church. And so Jesus, he's the Lord of heaven and earth. He's the head over the church. He's the head over every, all the spiritual realm. And so he's holding those angels in his hands. In other words, Jesus is in charge. Jesus is the authority here. The church needs to know that. The church needs to know that it's not kind of us making all the big decisions and then just checking out, oh, what do you think, Jesus? Is that okay? Uh, all right, you know, if, give us no sign. It's Homer Simpson logic. If you want me to eat this donut, give me no sign. Brilliant, fantastic, off we go. Let's eat a donut. Um, the church can get the idea that kind of Jesus is the, Jesus is the sidekick, Jesus is the co-pilot. No, Jesus is the captain. Jesus uh, is in charge. He's in control. And he walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, what we need to know is this. That in the temple in Jerusalem, in the Old Testament, uh, there were lampstands. And there were a great many priests. And what maybe one particular priest would have the, the duty to ensure that, that those lamps kept burning. And so they would, from time to time, they would need to check the lamps. They'd need to, uh, to trim them. Uh, maybe remove the wick and the old oil, refill the lamps with fresh oil, relight those that had gone out. The priest needed to tend to the lamps to make sure they continued to bear light. And so likewise now we see Jesus walking among the church. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it wonderful to think as we, as we gather here, week to week, Jesus is with us. Jesus walks among us. Jesus is wanting to minister to us. Jesus comes to tend to us. He comes to remind us of who he is. He comes to remind us of how great his love is. He comes to encourage those who are faint-hearted. Maybe he comes to challenge those um, who need a challenge. But he is, he's among his people. He wants to bless and therefore he comes to, yeah, commend Say, well done. He comes to to correct. There's something you need to sort out. He comes to exhort and encourage. He comes to to warn, to make sure that the church that bears his name is continuing to hold out light into a dark world. So there's comfort and correction. There's a well done. There's also a warning. There's love and Discipline. In Hebrews 12, verse 6, we're told, The Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. He doesn't punish churches because he doesn't love churches. He comes to, church, to churches, he comes to us, he comes to believers to, um, to encourage us and correct us, to comfort us and to challenge us. Uh, because he loves us. He's with us. It's great encouragement for us to know that in whatever situation we find ourselves, Jesus is with us. He's for us. He loves us. He's got words to speak to us. He cares about us, so he's going to get alongside and he's involved and speaking and encouraging. It's also greatly encouraging to know that actually, when necessary, he does bring correction. Let's imagine, um, let's imagine we, you're about to set off on uh, a huge adventure, something that you've never done before, uh, going somewhere that you've never been before. The landscape is, is kind of foreign, it's alien to you, perhaps it's a, uh, a hot desert, 
Um, perhaps it's um, kind of an Arctic scene. So knowing the right way to go is going to be a challenge because we're not familiar with this place. And also, everything can kind of look basically the same. It's a lot of snow or it's a lot of sand. And one dune looks much like another. How are we going to find our way? Well, thankfully, uh, we've been given a map and a compass. And so we know which way to head in. But let's just imagine that as we set out on our journey, we've kind of miscalculated by, by just one degree. And so we're supposed to be heading that way. But as we set off, we just set off slightly in the wrong direction. It's not a huge amount. It's not completely the wrong direction entirely, but it is it's off center. It's off line. Now, the further we go down that line, it might only be a tiny degree. It might not be very much to start with. The further we go down that line in slightly the wrong direction, we will go further and further and further and further and further away from our intended, direct, uh, from our intended destination. So, just one degree, but after a while, quite a big mistake. Wouldn't it be great, then, to have someone alongside us at the outset of that journey or very early on in that journey say, oh, hang on, I think you've miscalculated. Now, that could be irritating. I don't want to be told I'm wrong because I'm a man. And I know always which way to go. I know the perfect route to every destination. I know the quickest way to the Jubilee Center. Uh, At different times of the day, according to traffic, according to weather, I know. I don't need telling. Not that that happens in my household at all. Um, But actually, there are times it would be a good thing. It would benefit me if someone had said, Dan, you're just just straying. And uh, actually, I know that's not... The further we go down this way, the further greater distance there's going to be between us and the intended uh, direction. So it's better to have our bearings corrected sooner rather than later. That is what Jesus wants to do. He wants to reveal himself to this church in Ephesus. He wants to bless them and he wants to encourage them. And so we get this well done and we get then later on a warning. But let's look at the well done. A real well done. A real encouragement. We read it from verses 2 and 3. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you've tested those that claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You've persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Here is the Ephesian church. They are diligent. They know how to graft. They know how to roll their sleeves up. They kind of they toil they put in uh, the hard work. They are committed people. They're enduring people. doesn't sound particularly glamorous, does it? But um, endurance, perseverance, patience, keep going faithfulness, dependable um, attitude. They are, as it were, they're a strong plant. And they're not getting uprooted by all the persecution, all the trouble that's going on around them. Uh, they're not getting choked up by worries and led astray. They are a diligent, hard-working, careful church. And they've got their compass. And the compass is this. And this is what they love. They love the word, and so they are careful. And therefore, they're also well. They're praised for something that can sound really odd. In today's day and age... 
they're praised, they are commended for being intolerant. Well done, Ephesians, you bigots. Uh, fantastic. Your dogmatism is wonderful. Um, it, to our eyes, our eyes, to these things, um, that can sound a little bit strange because surely uh, many today, oftentimes, we would regard, well, tolerance is something that should be praised. The ability to kind of appreciate someone else's point of view, even if you don't hold it yourself. So, well done church for being so intolerant can sound a little bit odd. Well, let's think of it like this, however. Even today, for all of us, if we identify something as truly wicked, then we would then agree that's not something to be tolerated. It's not something to be allowed. It's not something to be kind of accommodated. And so I'm sure any one of us, if we, if we think, actually, yeah, that is wicked, then there's no excuse, ultimately. I mean, there might be any number of reasons, but there's no excuse. There's no way it can be rationalized. It's just wicked. The slave trade, that's just wicked. Child abuse, that's wicked. There's no way around that. It's plain wrong. And so we need to think in those terms. If we, we could all own up to our absolutes, yeah, you know, yes, things that we need to tolerate, but actually there, there are lines that can be crossed and lines that shouldn't be crossed. And so, in a sense, this, this church is rightly praised for, on occasions, not tolerating now, what aren't they tolerated? They're, they're not tolerating uh, wicked men. Now, it's important for us to see here that that is not talking about unbelievers, people who aren't following Jesus um, as wicked, who should be kind of not tolerated, as it were. Rather, it's talking about believers. It's talking about people who are in the church or who are apparently following Jesus, at least. Jesus reserved his strongest words, for uh, not for sinners who needed rescue, whom he wanted to spend time with and welcomed, but religious people who claim to be special, claim to speak for God, but who are in fact misleading people and who should actually know better. And that's the case here for the Ephesians. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. How have they tested them? Well, they've heard what people have been teaching. They've heard so-called special super apostles or whatever. People are setting themselves up to be uh, an important voice in the life of the church today and they've tested what they say. How do they test it? Well, they've got the compass. They are taking everything back to the scripture. And so, this church has some wonderful strengths. They love the truth. They want to be faithful to the truth. They want to dig deeper into the truth and get to grips with what the Word of God says. They don't want to wander off into error. And so when any new teaching, unfamiliar words come their way uh, from people they're not quite sure of, they, they test them. They return to what the Bible says. And in fact, this is what they had been told to do many years previously. So if you turn to the book of Acts, Paul spent a lot of time in Ephesus, got the church started, as it were, taught there for a number of years. There comes a point when he needs to say goodbye. And when he does so, 
uh, it's a, this kind of bittersweet moment because he loves them so much. He, he knows also that he's not going to see them again. And so he gives them this kind of stark warning, as, as it were, in, or instruction in Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20 and verse 25, we could read on from there. Now I know that none of you among whom I've gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I declare to you today that I'm innocent of the blood of all men. For I've not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So they understood, and they'd really got hold of that. They knew they really needed to be vigilant, watching over the flock understanding that actually from their own number, from within the church, people could arise who would distort the truth, try and draw people away. And so they needed to be on their guard. And so they weren't afraid to resist ideas that might have sounded nice, but were actually false and would just lead people away. They weren't scared to say, that's not true. I don't see that in the scripture. They're not holding back from confrontation. They've got a firm grip on the truth. This encouragement from Jesus is a real encouragement. In a moment, we're going to go and look on to the, to the warning. But let's pay attention to the well done. Because it's important that this isn't, the well done isn't thrown out when we hear the warning. This, this is an important quality to have. Rather than kind of tolerance anything goes, it's good. There are people in the church who actually know where T's should be crossed and I's should be dotted in terms of doctrine, in terms of truth. It's good because the people, uh, people in the church need protecting from potentially uh, wolfish distractions, wolfish ideas and even, uh, from time to time, wolfish people. That's the well done that church receives. And yet, there is a warning we need to look at too. Verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. So they've been very careful. They have kept a firm grip on the truth. They've dug deeper and deeper into the word of God. And yet there's something that they have been careless with. There's something that they've lost, something they've given up, something they've yielded. They've been so careful with something, so consistent, patiently enduring, doing the hard graft, going back to the scriptures. But you have forsaken your first love. To which I say, ouch. It's got to hurt to hear that. You have forsaken your first love. I mean, how did, how did Peter feel when right at the end of John's gospel, he's with Jesus, and Peter has denied him three times, and Jesus now turns to him and says, Peter, do you love me? Obviously, we understand that in the process of doing that, Jesus was restoring Peter, but at the same time, that conversation, that wasn't comfortable. That wasn't 
easy. That's an ouch, an ouch moment. It's got to hurt to hear that. Also, it's got to hurt to say it too. I mean, does anyone want to say, do you still love me? Um, is this still working? <laughs> um, that is not an easy thing to say either. Jesus had predicted in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 24, we're going to look at that just briefly. He'd seen ahead, and he realized what was going to happen. He was foretelling a number of things that would ha- happen in the future. He's talking to his, his disciples in Matthew 24. He said, in verse 9, Then you'll be handed over to the, be persecuted and put to death. You'll be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. And up to that point, the Ephesians are going, yes, we know. And Jesus is saying to the Ephesians, yes, well done. Because in the midst of all of this, you've been doing well. In the midst of persecution, in the midst of some people being put to death, in the midst of uh, John being um, sent to Patmos, uh, sent to prison, there have been many people um, kind of hating you. Uh, there have been many people who've been turning away from the faith. But look at you, you've done well. You've dug in, you've kept going, you've been persevering. But then verse 12, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. And again, that's the part that just starts to press on the situation in the Ephesian church. They, they hadn't lost their grip on the truth, but the truth had lost its grip on them. They had a firm grip of the truth, but it's like the truth was no longer really touching their hearts. The Ephesians hadn't turned away from the faith, but their love had grown cold. In John's Gospel, he said to his disciples this in John 13 and verse 35, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Loving one another, the the evidence then that we know the love of God and we love God. And maybe, well, their love had begun to grow cold. You kind of wonder, what what does cold love look like? What does it look like when love has grown cold? Well, I wonder in the Ephesian church, they had this great strength. They didn't tolerate wicked teaching and all the rest of it. But perhaps that strength had a corresponding weakness. And so in their love for the truth, they were no longer loving each other. By all this, men, um, by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. That's the bit that had maybe got diluted along the way. So technically or theologically, they could be right. They could be correct in debate, for example. But actually, in how they were handling themselves, in what they said, in how they said it, that was wrong. And so, yes, they were good at spotting wolves. But also, maybe they were starting to treat sheep, genuine and real sheep, as if they were wolves. And so pouncing not just on wolfish ideas, but pouncing on sheep as well. In any church there can be, from time to time, wolfish people 
with wolfish ideas who infiltrate the community and can damage people, leading them astray from good, solid teaching. As we'll see as we go on in other messages, we'll, we'll get a flavor of what that was like. For some, that might have been um, leading people astray by kind of saying, sin doesn't matter, so, so let's, let's indulge in this sin. Let's indulge in that uh, immorality. It doesn't matter. Uh, God loves us anyway. Those kind of ideas can come in. Uh, other ideas can come in, kind of the other end of the spectrum, where just the idea is, well, to please God, come on, here are all the rules, and you've got to do this, and this is how much, uh, this is how much you should give to the church, this is what you should uh, say, this is what you do, well, you're not supposed to do that. Um, uh, you have to kind of um, jump through so many hoops, um, and then God will be pleased with you. And again, just huge error could, could draw the church in either direction. But most people in the church are not wolves. Uh, we're sheep. Um, sheep that sometimes need steering, sometimes need directing, need encouraging, sometimes need correcting, and even warning. But sheep don't need pouncing on. In 1 John 4 and verse 20, um, John writing there says this, If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And so if love just grows cold, well, it, it's mismatched to say, oh yes, I love God. But if the evidence is not loving people, that's not really going very far. Cold love can be very quick to find fault, can be very quick to write people off, can be more inclined um, to talk about those that maybe don't belong rather than those that do, um, therefore not perhaps very welcoming. Cold love is where we might enjoy the opportunity even to criticize others in the church. We can be easily irritated. Uh, we can lose our temper. We can have a tendency to kind of be pedantic about matters which maybe we're not going to be able to arrive at clear, a clear conclusion on in any way. They're kind of debatable, peripheral. But we can get pedantic on them and then get angry with people if they don't agree. A cold love. Much stronger at explaining grace than actually practicing it. Cold love doesn't look at others through eyes of grace, but through eyes of condemnation. So, cold love, also perhaps, in an atmosphere of cold love, maybe there's not going to be all that much enthusiastic talk about Jesus uh, to other people. There's a, a wariness towards wolves has actually just become a wariness towards sheep. And that is desperately sad. Reading John's words there, when he says in, in 1 John 4, if anyone says, I love you, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. I, I kind of wonder if in, in John's mind at that point was a very early situation in the Bible that took place between two brothers, both professing to love God but it resulted in murder. And so you can look at another time at Genesis 4, the story of Cain and Abel. And yes, okay, they were, they were fallen, um, Adam and Eve, 
had been sent from the garden. Cain and Abel, therefore, um, outside of that paradise too, outside of the, the intimacy of that relationship with God. And, and yet, as, we, as you read in Genesis chapter 4, they both wanted to bring an offering. They both wanted to, de- to demonstrate their worship to God in one way, in some, in, in some way or another. They, they chose different means to do that. Um, but apparently, they're both wanting to worship God. Brothers in the same family who know God and know that he's worthy of worship. And yet, because one offering was accepted and one wasn't, hatred filled the heart of Cain. Sin was crouching at his door. And his response to that was to go out and kill his brother. His brother had done nothing wrong. His brother had done something that was acceptable in his eyes. But maybe Cain had got the idea um, that, well, what my brother's doing isn't really that impressive. He's offering an animal. He's sacrificing an animal. Isn't that a bit bloody? Isn't that a bit messy? Isn't that a bit grim? I'm bringing something which is sophisticated. I'm bringing something which is impressive. I'm bringing something, and I'm sure God will look well on my offering. And his heart is exposed. You think, oh, the tragedy of a family rent apart, both professing, oh, we love God, but actually then hating a brother. Doesn't, doesn't belong in the family of God. And that's what, in a sense, John is drawing attention to here with the Ephesians. Your love has grown cold. Yeah, I'm sure that, that involved their affection towards Jesus that was on the wane. Well, how was that made evident? How was that made clear? Just by friction, irritation, a hardness and a coldness towards family members, towards other people in the church, other people with whom they had so much in common. Wonderfully and thankfully, Jesus here, he brings attention to the well done. It's so good that he brings attention to the warning as well. Because there is a way forward. And the way forward is spelt out in verse 5. Remember the height from which you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. There's been real encouragement. There's been a real well done. There's also a real warning. But there's a real way forward as well. Remember. Remember the height from which you've fallen. It's not always been like this, has it? So just look back. Look at how things maybe have, have been. Look back and see your, your, your journey, as it were, how it's begun to come off, off line, off, off center. You set out. The point that you set out from, well, that was good. But ever since then, you've just been f- going astray a touch. And now as you look back, well, there's quite a big distance between where you are and where you should be. Remember, it's not always been like this. Remember, repent, which is this, this definite turning, this definite point of, I agree, God, with your verdict. I agree, God, and I'm stepping back onto the right track. I'm, I'm stepping back into brotherly love. I'm stepping back into um, loving God and loving people. Repentance can easily be avoided by blame shifting. He, he made me do it. It was her fault. It's not fair. Sometimes really obvious, um, blatant excuses. Um, the only reason I did it was because, well, whatever. You can fill in the blank. Maybe there are other 
uh, more kind of grown-up um, excuses. I, I, I was tired. I was lonely. I was confused. I was ill. I've had a lot to cope with. There's so much going on at work. There's so much going on that then when I get home, I'm, I find it difficult to, to kind of put the stresses of the day behind me and I find myself in a snappy mode. There's so much to cope with. Well, all of those reasons or excuses for things that we've said wrong or handled ourselves in a harsh, overbearing, irritable, tempered kind of way can just be a distraction from the main issue. I may have been lonely, I may have been tired, I may have been ill. Um, It may not be entirely fair, but I was wrong. (laughs) Repentance is coming to the point of saying, I was wrong. It wasn't good. And so Jesus is offering the church here in Ephesus a wonderful, gracious opportunity to get back on the right track. He is, as it were, he is walking among the lampstands. He is holding the stars in his hands. He is involved. He is speaking to the church. He is with them. He's bringing encouragement to them. Um, He could, if he wanted, just bring kind of judgment and a great big verdict in one go and say, well, that's it. You've had your chance. But no, he's giving the gracious opportunity. Will you just come back? Can you see? It's gone gone off track a bit. Remember. Repent. And repeat. Do the things that you did at first. The Christian life may kind of cut against the grain of our human nature, our sinful nature. Therefore, it's not always easy, but it's not complicated. Love God. Love his word. Love speaking to him. Love other people. Love showing an interest in them. And love speaking to them. As uh, Mark Driscoll once put it, preaching on on this passage, he said uh, to his church, look, um, yeah, read. Read books. Read big books. But also, bake cookies and hug people. And it's that kind of mixture. Love the truth. Love God. Um, kind of know where the T's are that need crossing and the I's are that need dotting. But actually, go for the God-given ministry of cookie baking and hospitality and hugging people. It's like, there you go. Core group for this week is sorted. Get some cookies. Talk with each other. Love each other. And enjoy God. Um, We don't want to get so pedantic on things, that whilst having a a right and honourable desire to always come back to the Word of God as our compass, always kind of interrogate teaching, interrogate what we say by by looking at at the Word of God, falling in love with Jesus afresh because we see him on every page, yes, doing that, digging in deep as we love one another. It's sobering to see here that along with real encouragement, the warning is real. And it becomes clear because Jesus says, if you do not repent, there are consequences for ignoring Jesus and what he says and what he reveals. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. 
So at the moment, Jesus is walking amongst the lampstand, and the Ephesian lampstand is there. But he's saying, if you don't repent, I will remove your lampstand. Your lampstand will no longer be in my presence. I will no longer be in your presence. You might continue to meet together, but your meetings will be like a skeleton. They indicate that life was once there, not that it's alive now. And what a desperate situation had the Ephesian church not repented. What a desperate situation where the, the church would die. There might be something to suggest, you know, Jesus was here. The church was here, but, but now it isn't. Uh, some have suggested there's kind of a reference here to the city of Ephesus itself, um, which had to actually be relocated a number of times in its history because the, the, the river estuary that it was right next to um, keeps getting blocked up with silt. And so for it to be a kind of meaningful port, uh, they had to dredge that all up. They had to move the city around. doesn't sound particularly easy. Um, and so that's what was happening. That's what happened in the history of that place. And so they're kind of saying, well, look, it's not just you as a city that's going to have to get moved around. This, this lampstand, that's going to get moved around as well. So still, at the present, Jesus is holding the seven stars in his hand. He's walking amongst the, the lampstands. And what that means is that heavenly help is available for him, from him, for the church. It's a real, it's a real warning, but there's real hope as well. And there's a moment we'll see a, a real promise too. Um, it's wonderful the way this is, is, is panned out. Jesus knows he needs to address something, but he also knows, yeah, I know your deeds. There's so much to commend this church for. He goes on to speak about what needs to be addressed, and then immediately after says in verse 6, but you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We won't go into those practices particularly now, about which a great deal isn't known in any case. But it's like saying this, I've got hope for you as a church, because look, in, in this regard here, You've got my heart. In this regard here, you see things the way I do. So don't just agree with me in regard to the Nicolaitans, this other group of heretics who are saying a whole bunch of lies. Come and agree with me on this matter about you. Don't just be convinced about what, what other people need to turn away from. Be, be convinced here. Your love has grown cold. Now come back. Allow it to be refreshed. Repent. Turn, turn away from it entirely. Come to agree with me and, and see it as something that has to be got rid of. If you're going to be a lamp that is sh- shining brightly in this world, into a dark world, this is the thing we've got to nail. Let's love each other. Not the Cain and Abel style of brotherly relationship, but the one that John encourages us to. John says in 1 John 3, verse 14 and 15, 1 John three fourteen. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. We have passed from death to life. And therefore, the natural evidence of that is we love our brothers. It leads to, finally, as well as there being a real way forward, there's also a real wonderful 
promise. And the promise is given in verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is like God giving just yet another wonderful incentive to address the matter that he's brought to their attention. It's almost like when a parent says, uh, tidy your room and then we can play outside. The room really is a mess, but we really can go and play outside. And what you do need to do is really tidy your room and then we can really go and have some fun. And like that, in a far more profound way, um, Jesus is saying, look, there, there is a danger the lampstand gets removed. It hasn't been as yet. You're in my presence. Heavenly help from me is available. Come now, let's agree together. You repent from these things, and we can really go on. And forever, you, if, you, if you overcome in this matter, if you've really listened, and if you, if you put into practice what we've been talking about, and if you overcome in this matter, I will give you the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That tree of life was the wonderful, blessed provision of God that Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, right at the beginning in Genesis, lost the opportunity to enjoy. But now, available forever into the future, an eternal life with God in paradise, knowing him and being known by him, our wonderful destiny and something incredibly great to look forward to. That's the incentive. That's what we're heading for. That's the destination. But we might just need to readjust. We might just need to set the compass back. That's where we want to go. That's the great incentive. And that's what we can uh, look forward to enjoying uh, forever with Jesus. So let's just heed what John was spelling out here, what Jesus was spelling out here to the church in Ephesus. If we... He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We want to, as we began by singing, give our attention so fully to Jesus that when he speaks, we hear, we listen, we understand, and then we kind of agree with his verdict and we go with it. It's gracious of God to bring stuff to our attention as and when he needs to. So let's make it our, our mission, our delight, our goal, our joy to love God, love the truth, and love people. Amen. Let's pray together, shall we?